0: Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc.
1: Good morning. It's great to be able to, um, be here and share with you guys. And so last week, who well, was here for the brunch? That was awesome, wasn't it? I felt like it was, it was just an awesome time celebrating what the Lord's been doing, his faithfulness. Um, 10 years is awesome, but it's nothing we did. It's God's grace, you know. Um, Jesus is the glue of this church. And so he's the one who's brought us this far. And so it's just so encouraging to hear testimonies and things. And, um, and so we've kind of taken that week. But before that, we've been talking through, um, these sort of values that as Mercy Hill, we might say this is kind of part of our DNA. And so two weeks before the brunch, John had spoke about how we love each other because Christ first loved us. Right? We showed Brett and Heather's video, um, which was beautiful and awesome. Just this picture of the gospel of welcoming children to your home and just loving people um, where they're at. And then the week after, John talked about serving others through love. He gave an example of John and Ruth, who probably hated that whole sermon, <laughs> but it was it was really good. And um, just talking about how we pray for people. We don't give up. We have people in our homes. We show up. We do what's needed. These kind of things are part of our DNA. So this morning, we want to continue that. And we have another video. And um, and what we've been doing, if you haven't noticed, is we had Lacey Blonde, who's the worship leader over at Hope Church, um, put together these stories of people in our church. And so um, we've had one on the Welcome Network with the Hadleys, Brett and Heather, um, LifeShare Group, those things. Um, and this morning, we have another one. And it's uh, a story of, um, Brad and Julie Wildman who Julie's here and, um, Brad isn't here because he's loving his friends. <laughs> and, um, which is, which is cool. Um, but their, their story that they want to share is just how they've welcomed people into their homes and, and love them where they're at and continuing that kind of theme. Um, and so we, we get the chance to see this video. Um, and afterwards, um, I'm going I'm to start it as soon as possible because it's longer than the other ones. <laughs> and then afterwards, um, Julie is going to come. She wants to share some things with us. And then I have some things I feel like the Lord wants to speak to us through this video. So we can go ahead, Deb, and cue that up. Mm-hmm.
0: Hi, I'm Brad. This is my wife, Julie. We've been members at Living Word for many years. And the last two years, we've been members at Mercy Hill Church. And this is our story.
2: So it was 1992, and we had just moved to a house in Hammond, Indiana. And I was working from home. And I started to notice these children, four of them, running around our property at all hours of the day and night. And I just began to wonder who they were and where their parents were. I finally went outside to introduce myself because they were in our yard playing basketball and playing with the dog that we had at the time. And I quickly discovered that the parents were divorced. The mom was not living in the area. And the dad was working all the time and was also an alcoholic. But right after meeting them, the Lord clearly spoke to me. Uh, that these children were going to be a part of our lives and that he wanted them for himself. And I was pretty overwhelmed by that. Um, just, we, we didn't have children. Uh, we couldn't have children at the time and I didn't know what that was going to look like but that is indeed what the Lord did. Sometimes we'd get a knock on our door at about 10 o'clock at night and the kids would be standing on the porch uh, wanting a place to stay because their dad wasn't home and it was raining outside and they were afraid. Um, sometimes I would have to call the grandma just to okay things with her. You know, the grandma seemed to be very happy for us to be involved and it took a little bit of a load off of her. So I would take them to museums sometimes. We would have tea parties together. Again, it just became more and more involved, and we could tell that the dad wasn't involved and that the grandma was kind of the go-to person for permission to do things with them.
0: Just having the kids around was a little bit different for me. Um, Wasn't used to children, love kids, but kids are kids. They they would be obnoxious. they would be obnoxious, and they'd be obnoxious. (laughs) And the neat thing is, I think Julie really helped me uh, largely in this whole thing. just She was solid in terms of um, the word from the Lord and also consistent in in her giving. And it really fueled my own desire um, to just love the kids and to offer myself as well, in spite of it being certainly a bit more of a challenge for me than it was for Julie
2: so it was about three to four years that we were dealing with the kids when the oldest one April came to live with us and that was a mutually agreed upon arrangement we didn't have any formal custody or legal guardianship and that was a very difficult situation and I just remember really one day becoming just overwhelmed and tired and Uh, The Lord just dropped a verse into my head from Galatians 6, 9. Do not grow weary in doing good, for in the end you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. And I remember writing that on the refrigerator because I needed it to remind me.
0: So there was a small window of time where Chris came to join his sister April living with us. And uh, we were contemplating a move to Memphis, Tennessee. April had made up her mind that she did not want to think, move to Tennessee. Uh, Christopher was gung-ho to do something unique and do something different. So I had the, the task of uh, having conversation with Chris's dad, Chris, as well, and uh, to ask if he wouldn't mind us taking Chris with us, and that would require that we had guardianship to take care of health needs, uh, school enrollment, etc. The way that I put it to him was we want to help you do what you're struggling to do now because of workload, etc. Even though we knew there was a lot more behind it than just that, surprisingly, he was like, "Hey, this would be great. You guys are welcome to take him. I'll be happy to sign over guardianship." Which in itself a little bit sad, but um, it was good for us, certainly good for Chris. And so we were off to Tennessee.
2: So we moved to Memphis and we were a part of another lifeline church down there. So Christopher was part of that as well and he just blossomed. He, in the afternoons he had time to play with other children that were being homeschooled. Uh, one family in particular had four boys and they lived on 10 acres and Christopher got to ride dirt bikes and ATVs and run in the creek in the woods. So it was just a wonderful opportunity for a kid from Hammond, Indiana, the city, to just explore and be a boy. People loved Christopher. He, he was a very uh, joyful person. He was fun to be around. He would make people laugh. Kids loved him. Adults loved him. He was just a fun person to be with.
0: So we, with all these positive influences in his life, we um, had the great opportunity of seeing him give his life to the Lord Jesus and so in one of our friends' pools one day I had the opportunity to baptize chris and uh, a real special moment and obviously uh, something going forward that we we reflect on and think what a, what a neat wonderful powerful moment uh, in terms of his relationship
2: with Jesus so we lived in Memphis for two years and then we made a decision to move back and Christopher just became difficult to handle, and he started to get involved in um, some drinking and we think some substance abuse. And Red would give him ultimatums, and uh, eventually Christopher made the decision to leave our home because he didn't want to abide by our rules any longer.
0: Shortly after uh, Christopher leaves, um, he goes off to live with a family, and then eventually, because of his struggles with that family, ends up at a boarding school in Michigan. Um, those years go by, and frankly, we're out of touch a little bit in those in those couple of years. And then, uh, upon graduation time, we get a chance to be a part of that with him in Michigan, and we have a bit of a reconnection, and even a uh, almost an apology on his part, and a. Uh, a bit of a repentance where he realizes that we've always loved him and always had his best interest to he expressed sorrow for letting that kind of get away. So relationships reestablished, established um, but he marries uh, rather swiftly and all of a sudden is building a family uh, very swiftly and um, really just has this pattern of falling in and out of issues and because of bad decisions, compounded problems, abuse issues, he's in and out of that. Meanwhile, we, we love him very much. Um, he somehow, I don't even think that I involved in the process, just calls me one day and says that he's in the pipe fitters. And, uh, I had the opportunity to talk to my superintendent, my boss at the time and say, hey, can we have this kid join our company? So, He's with us, uh, working with us, and he's a stellar worker, Ernest, getting stuff done, knocking it out. So Chris and I are working together, and he's got a large family now and made some poor decisions with finances, so he was always chasing money. So if we would get to these 40-hour situations and he needed to make more money, sometimes he would leave. And every time he would leave from being with me, we would eventually find out that there would be problems and slipping back into substance abuse. This was a reoccurring pattern. And as time went on up into the very recent future, um, he had remarried and just really, again, just found himself in, a, in a, a boatload of struggles with finances and various other things, even to the point where my boss had to ask him to leave because he just was unreliable and again all this just simply stemmed from his abuse issues. So we um, finally had uh, a real good sit down with him. So I worked together with him on establishing some parameters. I just said, hey Chris, look, everybody wants to see you succeed. They're going to make mistakes. That's okay, we'll pick you up. You need to have some accountability in terms of Dealing with this substance abuse, and it has to be someone besides me. It has to be someone who you who knows your situation that can help you through it. And he agreed that he would do that. And uh, this was on a Friday afternoon, so um, shows up for work on Monday to come to work for me. Um, I remember it's still dark in a November morning, and I hugged him and said, "Welcome back! It's so so awesome to have you. I missed you." And uh, he just seemed not himself in terms of feeling awkward. It just seemed like he was uncomfortable. However, he did a great job working that day, got all the stuff done. Then Tuesday he comes and has a conversation with me about the day's events and what I want him to do in terms of a task. And then I had some stuff to do in another part of uh, the hospital where I was working and uh, left him alone and then had come down sometime later to find that he was not around. We found out eventually that his his car was there, and I I actually walked out to see if, if the if his car was there in the parking lot, and uh, at the same time another guy had um, indicated that you know there's he was, he was actually there and said hey you don't want to go over there. So short of it is that uh, Chris had made a decision for some reason under pressure that morning. I'll never know exactly why, I guess you you can't figure these things out, but he had decided to take his his life at at that moment. And so I found him in that particular place. Finding Chris in that situation it wasn't so much a struggle for me. To be honest with you, I, I felt like I was the right person to find him. Um, to have my partner say, you know, he was crouched down in another place, like, almost in tears saying, Brad, don't go over there, don't go over there. But I was almost like business mode. Opened the garage door and checked his, or opened the car door and uh, checked his pulse and went through everything. And to be honest with you, there was something... In me being able to in the, in the moment to almost just say goodbye, so. it was very difficult, but um, still, it felt right that I should should be there, that i I could have the opportunity to say goodbye without having to say it on the side of a casket. And uh, I think um, it wasn't, it, it still It doesn't haunt me, the images don't haunt me at all, uh, and God's very kind to me and gracious regarding that. I, uh, if anything, I, I, I still have issues with struggling with the loss, just the you know, the idea that your mind wants to resolve everything, it's kind of the way that you're made, you're wired, at, you're I'd like to uncover the reason, and uh, it's so difficult to come to a place where you just can't figure it out and you have to be okay and just say, Lord, I can't figure it out. You just help me to be okay with with where things are at and with my inability
2: to understand. It's a weird thing, but you don't just deal with normal grief, you deal with anger toward that person. Um That's the first place it's directed to. I think it's probably the most supremely selfish act one could commit. And so you deal with the selfishness of that act. Even though knowing that their mind isn't right, your anger is irrational. You deal with anger at yourself. Like, could I have done something more? I was angry with the Lord. I said, Lord, you told me that you wanted these kids for yourself. Why did you allow these circumstances to happen, Lord? And we never have an answer for that. And so that's when I have to rely on God's word. When my circumstances or my thoughts or my feelings or these things that are very temporary actually um, kind of invade our our soul, we have to, the only thing I can go back on is what is truth. And even when I have doubts or I have fear, I go back to what is truth. And there is nothing out there That is that satisfies, and there is nothing out there that answers that question for me of what is truth other than God Himself and His Word. So I wouldn't say that I'm fully healed, or um, I still feel like I'm going through the grieving process. But this whole concept of anointing um, me with oil, the oil of joy instead of mourning. I just recently read something about when the shepherd anoints the sheep's head with oil. That was this oil is to keep the bugs and the flies from irritating them. And so I feel for me that's those lies that the enemy wants to speak to me about the suicide or about Christopher or about circumstances um, or about my anger, or my bitterness. And those things are slowly dissipating. I don't hear those voices anymore. I hear, you know, I just speak the word to myself that is how the Lord is anointing my head with oil
0: so obviously in terms of processing this thing and um, it, it's, it is an ongoing struggle but there's, there's these things that we rely on um, I think hearkening back to Chris's conversion experience and the baptism in, in Memphis was a real uh, place to drive the stake in the ground for me uh, to keep me from blowing away uh tie myself to that. And uh, also, it, it's just, it's one of those things too where it's so beautiful in a relationship with the Lord Jesus to just find Him to be enough. Um, I, I, I saw through this whole experience how fragile life is, how short it is. Um, but to know that we have this hope in Jesus that will never fade. We will have struggles in this life, but we can take heart in the realization, the clear realization, that Jesus has overcome the world, and that's the place where I can harbor my heart.
1: telling your story. Guys yeah, it's it's um really difficult but there's there's beauty in this I think. Um so Julie if I can invite you um to come up and share what yeah, what you feel like words put on your heart. <laughs> we love you guys.
2: Right. <laughs> I saw it once already and I just <laughs> kind of start marking those things in your head you know um so the main thing that I want you to take away from this is that um that the that anger and that bitterness and the um you know i I always have questions like I'm a a real questioner person and I wrestle with God like Jacob wrestled with God to be blessed I always wrestle with God to get answers to my questions and I don't know if anybody has ever done that but they don't always come and I always wonder why aren't you answering these questions and that question of Lord you said and I don't have an answer for that there are good things that have come out of the situation, the a rekindled relationship with his three sisters, their spouses or significant others, Um them calling us on the phone and grasping for whatever, none of them, well, one of them is a believer who struggles a little bit in her walk with the Lord, the other two are not. So that is a blessing, you know, but there's still not an answer. I feel like the enemy robbed you know, Christopher of his life. And so how do I deal with that? When I go to the Lord and say, I don't see victory here. I don't understand why the enemy got the upper hand in this situation. Um, I don't have an answer for that. But I look, this is funny. I always thought Ecclesiastes was the most depressing book you could ever read, you know. And the poor dude just didn't know Jesus because he hadn't existed yet. <laughs> and you're like, this guy has no hope. But you look at it and you realize, you know, the light, this world does not satisfy. Um, There's nothing, no experience. You know, I haven't done a lot of crazy things in my life, but I, you know, I lived 18 years before knowing Jesus. And so there were some things that I reached out for, but I didn't, you know, turn to drugs or alcohol, but. There is nothing as far as your mind or your intellect or questions that you can ask or things that you can look for, you know, in reading and study. Nothing satisfies. Absolutely nothing. So what do you come to, what do you do when you come to the end of yourself and the end of those questions and you still don't have an answer? Like, why does this happen? What? There's silence most of the time. And then I go, all right, well, you know what? Buddha. All these things that are out there, these people, these crazy things that people turn to, nobody has answers. I've met so many people in different walks of life, especially being in the art world. Nothing answers the questions, nothing. Sometimes Jesus or God doesn't answer our questions, but is there anyone else to turn to? There is no one better. There's no one that satisfies more. So when this happens and I don't get answers, what happens though? I get peace. Where does that come from? All of a sudden, my questions don't really mean anything. They just kind of fall to the wayside, and the Lord just floods me with his peace. And then I just keep going on until the next question comes, you know. And then sometimes I get answers, and sometimes the Lord directs me to the word. But I get peace, and that's the only thing I have to turn to, you know, when I don't have the answers. So anyway, I hope that encourages someone. Um Suicide really, really stinks. Because you not only deal with grief, you deal with anger, and it's so hard. Um, And I hate it. But And there's, you know, as a parent, you think, well, what could I have done differently? You know, we weren't his physical parents, but what could I have done differently? How can I wrestle this kid or get him to stop what he's doing? And we all know we can't do that, you know? We just, they have to live their lives. And that's part of my struggle is wanting to, like, get over here and just, you know, would you just make good decisions? You know, which is what I used to say to him, choose life. The Bible says choose life, you know, but, um, what happens when they don't? (laughs) And so we just, we keep going and we ask the Lord to give us peace and we ask him to bless the ones that are still here. And we do not, um, what's the verse I shared in Galatians? (laughs) Do not grow weary in doing good for in the end you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. One more thing I want to share is that God miraculously provided through um a lot of people and he paid to the penny um the whole um the expenses for the funeral costs, which we were gonna take on. One of the people and the families in this church, which is John and Ruth Hamstraw, immediately walked over to our house right afterwards and handed us a check. And I just want to say thank you. These two are so faithful. And John was one of the people that helped us make the decision when Christopher had to leave our home. Because we had to give him back to his dad when he left. He was only 17. He couldn't go on his own. And John helped us make that decision, which was really difficult. And I want to just honor them because they've been with us. Through a lot of this process, the reason we moved to Highland when we came back from Hammond, or being from Memphis, was because John and Ruth had a wonderful life, uh, youth group at the time that we wanted Christopher to be a part of, and it was through that youth group and through David Katinsky, who probably doesn't remember, but he's the one that prayed with Christopher to uh, accept the Lord. So we just, I'm just want to honor them because it's because of them that we are here. So thank you.
1: thanks Julie for sharing that. Um, loving people is really hard. It's really messy and it's really difficult. And I think loving people when we have no idea what the outcome is going to be is even harder. Um, but like Julie was sharing, um, how we don't grow weary in doing good because in the end we'll reap a harvest and we don't, Necessarily see that harvest a lot. We won't see it until the end. Um, But the Lord gives us peace and and comfort in these things. And I think for us as a church, and given the story and and the depth of it, and and this kind of theme of loving people no matter what the outcome is, is a part of our DNA. Because we've talked about loving people because Jesus loved us, right? we talked about what it looks like to welcome people and to care for people. Um, they saw these kids running around in their yard and just heard the Lord say, you know, love these kids, <laughs> bring them into your home. So they did in, in faith. Um, and so I think as a church, we need to be reminded of these things because there's going to be people that come into our lives, maybe now, maybe in the future, maybe years from now, who we feel like, um the Lord wants us to love to just take care of or, or to talk to reach out to that coworker or reach out to that family member whoever it is um and we might have in our minds what we think is going to happen when we love them <laughs> what we think is ultimately um you know where they're going to go from where they are to where we hope they can be but we're not in charge of that <clears throat> we we can't be we're not god you know we we can't ordain in people's futures and, and who they will be. We can just be there and sit with them and love them and help them through it. And one of the um, things that Jesus shares with his disciples, but this this um, guy who comes up to him um, as he's walking, this lawyer, he says, um, how can I get eternal life? And he, he talks about the commandments and, and it comes down to love your neighbor as yourself. And he asks a question, well, who's my neighbor, right? And then we get this story of Jesus talking about this Jewish man who's on a road, and he's beaten. And a bunch of people pass by him until one person shows up, a Samaritan. And this Samaritan doesn't walk by. He takes pity on him, bandages his wounds, takes care of him, brings him to an inn, and gives him a place to stay where there's food and shelter. He pays it, and he says, I'm going to come back. I'm going to settle my debts and things. And I assume I'm going to check up on this person, right? a Samaritan who in that day would be culturally inappropriate for him to be talking to a Jewish person because Jewish people didn't like Samaritans and vice versa, but he still chose to take pity and look on this person. So Jesus' response to this, you know, is your neighbor is anyone, essentially, right? Our neighbor, the people we're supposed to love, don't look like any specific type of person. In this case, they're little children, you know, in this story. It could be an elderly person. It could be somebody that um, just is completely not like you. But we see in the story that we're called to love no matter who it is, without distinctions, without conditions, and without knowing the outcome. Because the gospel has none. The gospel has no distinctions or conditions. Brad and Julie loved these kids when it would have been easy to ignore them, but the Lord spoke and they walked in faith. And loving people without knowing what's going to happen requires faith on our part. It requires trusting God every step of the way. The love needs to come from the Lord through us. But it would be so easy for us to decide not to give ourselves to others or to sacrifice parts of our lives for others if we knew how things would end. And I've been thinking about this this week. Jesus knew where his life would lead. He knew that as he loved his disciples, and as he loved the least of these, and as he loved these people he came into contact with, every step of the way, he knew where that road was leading and where his life would ultimately end up. Now, we know that he's resurrected, (laughs) right? But before that happens, he goes through a lot of painful things. He's tortured, he's beaten, he's put to death on a cross, and he experienced all these things. Would you, would we have done the same if, we knew what was going to happen to us. The sacrificial love of Jesus, it made a way for all of us to have a relationship with God, the Father, and a way for the Holy Spirit to give us strength to love others. Jesus knew what was going to happen to himself, and he still did it. He still loved us. He knew what the outcome was going to be, and he loved us. The call for us is simply this, in faith we walk this life, in faith we trust in God, even in our questions and even when we don't know what's going to happen. We trust in him and we love people and we leave the outcome to God. We leave it to his grace. We we leave it to what he knows, and it's pretty much everything we know, not a lot. He knows a lot more than us. But it's hard to give these kind of things up. We want to hold on to them. We need God's help in this. We need to ask the Lord to help us release these things and the things we can't control in our lives. Whether it's our kids here, whether it's family members who are struggling in this area, whether it's um, people in our lives. I'm just thinking about my brother who recently his his wife is from Columbia and she left him and went back to Columbia and their marriage is just not it's just in shambles at this point. And 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 I I went there um on a Friday morning and I came back the next night for a day just to see just talk to him and love him. And it's so hard for me not to be like like why are you doing this? And try and control the outcome and try and make her not leave on Monday, which she did. But I'm not in control of that. I'm not in control of their decisions and choices. And I'm and I'm kind of grateful in a sense because that's a lot. That's a big burden to bear when you love someone, to feel like you can control their outcome and who they're going to be. And that's not our burden to bear. That's God's burden to bear. That's why he exists. That's why he loves us. He knows what our outcomes and who we're supposed to be. So this morning, as we turn to um, the table, the commun- the communion table, I think there's a few things for us in this and as I share a couple things I want to invite um the the ushers who's sharing communion you can um head back there and begin to pass it out and the the band as well um we love for you guys to do that song at the end Will we love our neighbor without conditions without knowing the outcome and at this table uh, the last supper is Jesus is in a room with his disciples and there's 12 of them and they're all t- there together they're ready to share a meal he's he's at this point he's already washed their feet um i want to point out a couple people who are sitting at this table uh peter's sitting there the guy who eventually the church would be built upon he calls him this, this on this rock i'm going to build my church but before he does that peter is gonna deny Jesus, right? So Jesus is sitting at a table with a person who's gonna deny him after he's lived years with him and seen him perform miracles and seen him do these amazing things and love people and, and, and teach them. He's sitting at the table with a man who's gonna deny him. He's sitting at the table with a guy who is gonna doubt that he's even still alive after he's resurrected. <laughs> he's sitting at a table where there's a man, Thomas, who when Jesus reappears to the disciples, doesn't believe that he's actually there until he sees the the, the holes in his hands from the nails. Jesus is sitting at a table with a man who's going to betray him. He's going to sit at a table with a guy who's going to betray him and have him arrested and ultimately killed and die on a cross. I think Jesus knew these things sat at the table he looked at these guys and he shares communion with them he breaks the bread and 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 they take drink from this cup and he invites them and welcomes them at their table when he knows exactly what they're going to do before they've done it he knows the outcome of their choices and their decisions and he sits there and looks at them and shares this meal this this cup and this this bread with him and he loves them This is incredible to me. That Jesus would sit at this table and look at the very guy who's going to turn him over to be arrested and to have killed. And he shares communion with him. He invites him to the table. That to me shows us that love has no conditions. Our love through the gospel should have no conditions or distinctions, shouldn't be given to people based on who they are, their economic status, shouldn't be given to them based on how short or tall they are, how old or how young, right? Jesus looks at these people, these men who are sitting at the table, and he says, I love you, not to their face, but through his actions. And then after this meal, things things that he knew were going to happen, happened. And he still loved them. He still loved us to the point of death on a cross. He loved us when we were enemies before we knew him. You know, Julie shares that 18 years before she knew Jesus, she didn't do a lot of things, but you are an enemy of God. I was an enemy of God before the really 20-something years before I, I knew Jesus started following him. I might have not been like a horrible person, quote, but really we're all full of sin, so we could say we're all horrible. <laughs> But he loved us when we were enemies. He loved us while we were dead in our sin. Jesus loved us when we were dead in our sin. And he loved us knowing how our lives would go and even how many times we turn away from him or disobey his word. He knew these things and he still loves us. What he did on the cross shows that he loves us. The fact that he shared this meal, this communion, this table with These disciples who He walked with for years, and they still, one was going to betray Him, one was going to deny, one was going to doubt. He still loves them. Jesus loves us through it all. So I'd love for us to stand together uh, this morning, and we're going to sing, we're going to worship through a song, but in this moment here, I think we need to just rest on the fact that like jesus loves you (laughs) he loves you no matter what you've done no matter what you will do he knows these things and he says i love you because he loves us we can love others and because we know that he holds all things in his hand the god of the universe is in control of all things we can choose to love people who come into our lives even though we don't know what's going to quite happen and it looks different for everybody, but the beauty in Brad and Julie's story is is her, her resting on the word of God. I mean, in the midst of this this pain, and the word speaking to her, "Don't grow weary in loving others, because in the end you'll reap a harvest, and that can only be done through faith in God Himself. That's not something we can do on our own. So we doubt and we go through these things, but in the end, we're loved by Savior. We're loved by Jesus. So together now, let's. Let's take the bread because on the night um, that he was betrayed, he breaks his bread in front of men who are going to betray him. Uh, he breaks his bread in front of Judas and Peter and Thomas and these people. And he says, this is my body. Remember what I've done for you. He takes a cup that represents his blood that he gave to us on the cross. He says, take this, drink it, remember the, 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 the beating I took, the torture and the death on that cross, my blood was spilled out for you because I loved you. Lord, thank you that we all have a place at your table. God, before you gave yourself up, you invited your disciples to the table, no matter who they are. And this morning we have an invitation, God, to come to you. We have an invitation to come to your altar, Lord, to your feet and say, we need you, Lord, to come with um, our burdens and the things we have in our minds to give them to you, to worship you, God, and to say, Lord, we need you. I don't know what's going to happen in my own life, the people's lives I take care of, but I'm going to love them.